I hope so. Don't let the day get you down. God's word has uh, some great things for us today. I know some people have been wondering if it would ever occur today will actually be the day that we finish chapter 27. <laughs> so if you guys want to join with me, we're going to pick it up in, uh, in verse, beginning in verse 51. And we'll read through to the end of chapter 27. Beginning in verse 51, it says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were open. And many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there, looking on from afar, among whom were Mary of Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, uh, the mother of the Zebedee sons, and when evening had come, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Now this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary of Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember when he was still alive how the deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that a tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead, so that the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to him, You have your guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for an opportunity to study your word. We ask, Lord, indeed, that you would give us a heart willing to receive and apply the truths, God, of your word. And, Father, this story that we've heard so many times would not just be uh, that we would not have grown dull of hearing, but, Father, that our ears would be open to the message that you have for us this morning. God, we ask that you would be glorified again in this place as we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember last week we... We spoke about uh, the crucifixion and the fulfillment of what Scripture had talked about taking place. As we begin, just by way of reminder, I'm going to share a little uh, insert from a book um, that I have in my library that kind of give us some uh, insight and in remembering what's going on and what's happening and what has, uh, what has been preparing this, uh, the day that we speak of now. It says, Calvary, the meeting place of two eternities. From beyond the beginning of time, everything pointed forward to Calvary. On and on, beyond the end of time, it will point back to Calvary. Calvary is a place where human sin confronted the wrath of God. The place, too, where heaven's love and heaven's justice met. The cross stood out against the skyline like a lightning rod. Beneath its foot was a skull-shaped hill. Above its head were dark clouds laced with lightning and ablaze with menace. And the thunder roared. Then the flaming fire of God's righteous wrath stabbed down. The end of the world had come, but no, the cross, a God-made lightning rod, stood astride the path of certain doom. The thunderbolt of wrath was caught and contained by the upraised stake of the cross, by its widespread arms, and by the one who was nailed there as a sacrifice for all sin. That fearful bolt of wrath burst in all its fury in the soul of the Savior. The world was there, you see. Jew, Roman, and Greek. The worlds of culture, 
Conquest and creed were all represented. The priests and the people were there. Friends and foes were there. Mourners and mockers. They are all at the foot of the cross. They huddled around the cross, appalled by the darkness, shaking with fear. They escaped. Jesus took the judgment that was ours. The darkness receded. The storm clouds rolled away. The earthquake ceased to make the hill called Calvary shiver and shake. And a new day dawned for us all. As we come to the close of this day, and as we read this section of scripture, I'm reminded that a couple of things that God did at this moment, at this moment, we know just prior uh, when Jesus was on the cross, the scripture tells us, that from the sixth to the ninth hour, there was darkness in the land. And at that moment, God began to demonstrate His power to the world in ways that we often miss. We often don't see the demonstration of the power of God in the cross. We hear the story so many times, you know, Jesus hung on the cross, He died for my sins, yeah, I get it. I believe in Him and I'm saved. And it just becomes so many words. But in reality, the power of God is shown in that place so amazingly. The first part of the power of God that we see actually comes before that section that we read. When the sun was darkened from noon to three. Dark dark you you thought about how that occurs i you know some people would say well there was a there was an eclipse you ever seen a three-hour eclipse where the sun's dark for three hours i've never seen that i i've never experienced anything like that i've experienced partial eclipses and and it gets kind of dusky but that's not what the scripture declares to us the scripture says that the sun was darkened i want you to think of the power that's displayed in that 864,000 miles in diameter. Every morning for 33 years, the sun could hardly wait to get up in the sky and see what else Jesus would do. To see what other miracles He would wrought. This giant star covering the earth with light every day but one. One day, While Jesus was on the cross, it refused to shine. 864,000 square miles of star went out. Burning with 25 million degrees. Got dark. Hit its eyes. And immediately on that day, to certain men, I love the the depth, the distance that God is willing to travel to, to make himself real to people. To make himself real to the mourners and the mockers, to the scourgers and those who are the soldiers standing by, the people who had been with him since midnight the night before, who had beaten, mocked, and, and scourged, and, and now ultimately crucified. And God begins to reveal this incredible power. The sun goes out. Don't miss that. The sun went out. The light did not shine. Now, since all life on the earth did not perish, I assume the heat was still there. But the light was gone. Because the light of the world was dying on the cross. So the sun hid his eyes. And God began to show himself. He began to show himself. He goes on to show himself. In verse 51, it says... Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The veil of the temple is about the span of a hand in thickness, roughly six to eight inches thick. A curtain, six to eight inches thick. It took over 300 priests to hang it. And as Christ was dying on the cross, the veil was torn. 
And God said, every barrier to me is removed. You, do you imagine how jealously the priest guarded the, the, the right? One priest had one day a year to go into the presence of God. We, 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 we don't value it that way today. We don't revere God in the same way that they revered God. It, it, the, the, the priest, it was a jealous thing. I get to go before God. I get to be in his presence. One day. But God on that day took the veil and he ripped it from top to bottom and he said, the barriers are being torn down, removed. Anyone now has access to the Holy of Holies, which spoke of the presence of Almighty God. Anyone has access to the presence of God. I want you to think about the barriers that were in religion at this time. Still today, if you go to Israel and you go to the Wailing Wall or the, or the Western Wall and you want to offer a prayer, the Western Wall is divided into two parts. One for men, one for women. The temple was divided into two parts. One part where Gentiles could enter, one part where women could go, and one part where Jews could go. Barriers. Things that restricted people's access to God. And this moment, on this place, in front of this hill, God gave a, a demonstration of his power as he removed all those barriers. All of them. Think about what the scripture tells us. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, neither male nor female, you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. All the barriers are gone. All the barriers. There was even barriers between the high priest and the regular priest. People couldn't cross those barriers. But on this particular day, the writer of Hebrews enlightens us to what is taking place. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, if you want to turn there with me, Hebrews 10, 19, he tells us a little bit about what was going on at this moment in time as God demonstrates his power and the sun gives up its light and the veil is torn from top to bottom. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Having boldness... To go to the holiest, the holy of holies, the presence of God. Having boldness to enter into the holiest place by a new and living way which he, Jesus, consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. What had been done to the flesh of Jesus? It had been torn. What was done to the veil? It was torn. The division was gone. So he says, Having our high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The tearing of the veil is an example of the tearing of the flesh of Christ. The tearing of the flesh of Christ is what enables you and I to go into the presence of God. Because he was torn. So God demonstrated his power. And so nobody would think some soldier must have cut it with a sword. God did it from the top to the bottom. He ripped it. He tore apart that which divided. And while you're there in Hebrews, just turn to the left a couple of chapters. In Hebrews chapter 4. It tells us in verse 13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but who was in all ways tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of grace 
that we may obtain mercy and grace in a time of need. Jesus paid the price so that we could boldly come before God. Something one man could only do one time a year and only through sacrifice could he come. But now through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God demonstrated his power and tore the veil. The central fixture within the temple. You walk through the, the first door, which is not a door that you open, but a door that has a curtain in front of it. And as you walk through the door, the first thing you saw was the veil. And now it's gone. Now it's gone. The barriers that separate us from God. What are the barriers that separate us from God? Sin. What was being judged at the cross? Sin. So that if we would receive that forgiveness, and we acknowledge that I need forgiveness, that His sacrifice was for me, now there's nothing that separates me from the presence of God. Paul would write in Romans chapter 8. So what can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Yeah, nothing. Not death, not peril, not the sword, not suffering, not good times, not bad times. Nothing. The barriers were removed. God demonstrating his mighty, mighty power. But there's that's not it. It's still here in verse 51. We're seeing God demonstrating his power. Look what it says next. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. The rocks burst apart. Four days earlier, Jesus was riding into town and the the crowds thronged him. And the crowds began to sing songs. They began to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're excited about seeing this one that they see as their Messiah entering into the city. They're stoked. And the priests come up and they said, tell these people to be quiet. They're calling you the Messiah. And Jesus said, if they are quiet, the rocks will cry out. On the moment that Christ died, there upon the cross, as God has darkened the sun, and as he's torn the veil from top to bottom, demonstrating the incredible power of God, the rocks wouldn't be silent anymore. They burst open. I've been through lots of earthquakes. You guys been through earthquakes? Yeah. Um, earthquakes, you know, it's, it's like the wind blowing in Idaho and California is earthquakes. It just shakes. It's just God saying, one day I'm going to throw all of you into the sea. Well, in earthquakes, I, I happened to be in Alaska in the 80s, and there was an 8, I think it was an 8.2 or 8.4, huge quake. And uh, I remember watching nails that were in, uh, I was under just a, a, a patio roof at a gun range at the time, and uh, I remember watching nails fall out of the wood. So the wood's shaking, and I'm watching nails just falling out onto the ground. And I thought, that's pretty crazy. And I watched the ground look like a wave, like water. It just rippled. And I thought, that's pretty crazy. And there's a puddle of water, and I saw that water splash about four feet high. The ground was shaking so hard. But I never seen a rock burst open. I don't want you to lose sight of that. On the one day when all the people four days earlier were proclaiming the greatness of Jesus Christ. On the day when God was doing his greatest work of power. The rocks wouldn't be silent anymore. The earth wouldn't just stand by. And as we look at this section of scripture it says the earth quaked and the rocks Split. The rocks burst open. Great. What, what about the earthquaking? Listen, everywhere you go in scripture, when you look up the earthquaking, you are going to come upon the judgment of God. The earthquake is the judgment of God. God is saying to his people through the prophets, when you see this, and there were several earthquakes that occurred in the Middle East, God was saying, 
This is like the power of God. The scripture says, when the Lord speaks, the earth quakes. The demonstration of God's power. But there's a couple of verses I want to share with you out of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet who gives us the greatest description of the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 2, this is what he says. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. In that day a man will cast aside his idols of silver and of gold which they made each for himself to worship. He'll cast them to the moles and the bats to go into the clefts of the rock, into the crags of the ragged rocks from the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty when he arises and shakes the earth mightily. And I think Isaiah is seeing this day. I'll explain why in, in a minute. But when that earth shakes, it says people will run to the cleft in the rock. Immediately, if you study the scriptures, all of a sudden that should jump out at you, the cleft in the rock. Oh, you know that we have a song that, that sings about this called Rock of Ages. You know, Rock of Ages, what's the last line? Next line? Cleft for me. Remember the Bible tells the story of, of Moses in the Exodus. And when Moses was in the Exodus, the Lord said to Moses, Moses, I want you to walk over to the rock. The people need water. And when you get to the rock, I want you to smite it. You strike it with your rod. And the rock will split. And the water will come forth. And the people will have the water that they need. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, That rock is Christ. Rock of ages, cleft for me. He says, When the Lord speaks, and the terror of His words come, when this judgment happens, and the earth shakes, they will hide in the crack of the rock. They will hide. And the only place we can hide from the judgment of God. And that is in Christ Jesus. It's interesting because this, the book of Revelation has a, a similar example of something that occurs. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, if you want to flip there, it's the last book. Revelation chapter 6 verse 12 says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. Oh, sounds like the light went out, huh? And the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. That's a big earthquake, right? And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich, and the commanders, and the mighty, every slave and every free, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, whose wrath has come, and the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who can stand? The earth shook. Demonstration of God's judgment. God's judgment. They're seeing it. Isaiah 13 says, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of His fierce anger. He shakes the earth so hard it moves out of its place. You know, scientists still want to know why the earth is tilted on its axis. What happened? I think Isaiah tells us it's going to get tilted again when God shakes it. Every island is moved out of its place. The judgment of God, this outpouring of the power of God. In Isaiah 24, 18, he says... It shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear will fall on the, on the, in the pit. And he who comes out of the midst of the pit will be caught in a snare. For the windows on high will open and the foundations of the earth will be shaken. 
The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. Revelation chapter 16 talks about the exact same thing. The day when God pours out his power, the day when the stones cried out. If it speaks of God's judgment, what is being judged? Sin. He who knew no sin became sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God. How do I become the righteousness of God? I get in the cleft of the rock. The, the, the place which Jesus Christ at that moment on that cross wrought for me. God shows his power by blocking out the sun. He shows his power by tearing the veil. The rocks burst open and the earth quakes. But that's not all he did. The Bible says then the graves were opened. Huh? Well, there's really two parts to that. The first part is in the earthquake, in the bursting of the rocks. The graves were opened. You have fissures in the ground. Well, they don't bury like we do today. If you see the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is not people buried down in the ground. They're crypts set on top of the ground, made out of stone. So if I take a stone crypt on the ground, and then I violently shake the earth, for however long I violently shake the earth, what happens to the stone crypt? It breaks. The graves were opened. Why were the graves open? Why did the earthquake and these graves begin to open? Oh, not every grave opened, just some graves open. Why? Because God is making this incredible statement. He's opening the graves and he's saying the power of death has been broken. My son has set you free from the grave. Man's greatest fear throughout history has been the grave. Oh, the grave. So afraid of the grave. I'm not afraid of the grave. I'm not spending any time there. The Bible says... To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment the Lord takes my soul, I'm with him. And you do whatever you want to with the body. I just don't care. Well, what about the resurrection? God knows where the parts are. He'll bring it together. <laughs> People get uptight about the dumbest stuff. You ever notice that? Well, if you're cremated, how's God going to know how to put you back together? He is the one who created the earth from nothing. I think he'll be okay. I think it'll be all right. So the graves break open. The, the symbol of that breaking is to say the power of death is broken. The greatest fear of all mankind broken in this display of the power of God that we can just blow past when we're, when we're going through this section of Scripture. But that power is evident in the breaking of the grave. And then they tell us something even more fantastic. They tell, they tell us, the scripture goes on to say, not only were the graves open, but many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, don't lose sight of that. Some people trip out on this and they say, when Jesus died, the graves opened and it was like night of the living dead and the zombies started walking around. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the graves were broken. They were opened. Demonstrating the power of the grave being broken. And then what did it say? And they rose after the resurrection. Do you know Jesus' resurrection, which we'll talk about next Sunday, occurred on the 17th of Nisan. Which is the day of first fruits. And the day of first fruits, what you would do is you take the beginning part of harvest... And you would offer it as a wave offering to the Lord. So you would take whatever was there that day at harvest and you would gather some of it up and you would give it to the Lord as a wave offering and you thank God, thank you Lord for the harvest that is coming. What occurs on this day when Jesus rises from the dead, we see the first fruits fulfilled. When he brings some of the Old Testament saints and they go walking through Jerusalem after Jesus was resurrected. Who? Abraham? I don't know. Uh, Moses? I don't know. Old Testament saints went walking through the city proclaiming that Jesus Christ 
was offering the perfect first fruits, the first ones resurrected on that day. A promise of many more to come. It's not the completion of the resurrection, just the beginning. Just the first fruits that are waved before God and said the promise of a harvest. A harvest yet to come. A harvest that we will see yet fulfilled. The power of God demonstrated. The fulfillment of the first fruits. All these things that we've looked at. All the the power of God being poured out. Why was it poured out? Why do I think that that Isaiah chapter 2 has some bearing on what we're going to talk about? Because it was all poured out before the mourners and the mockers, the Jews, the Gentiles, the Romans, the priests, and the common man. On that day, don't lose sight of this. Jesus was crucified in a public place. It wasn't done in a corner, Paul said, when he brought his testimony to Agrippa. He said, you know about these things. They're done in the open. Everybody knows what happened. The demonstration of the power of God. What's the very next verse tell us? As we look in scripture, as we go now, it says, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw what? The earthquake and the things that happened. They feared greatly. Okay. The centurion is a non-commissioned officer in charge of a hundred men. So when they brought Jesus and they entered him into the praetorium and he went through the beating and the scourging and the mocking, this centurion was in charge of the men who were having fun. They were there with Jesus from the beginning to the end. They didn't just get him at the crucifixion. That's not how it works. You've been in the military, that's not how it works. You're going to ride that ride from beginning to the end. And so that centurion and those soldiers are with Jesus. And they mocked him and they spit on him and they said, Oh, you really think you're the son of God? Come on. You really are crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. And they spit on him and they made fun of him. And then he let the people make fun of him. And all this stuff going down. But all of a sudden, God demonstrated his divine power. His divine power. And the sun went out. And the rocks burst open. And the earth quaked. And the veil was torn. And the centurion and the soldiers who beat Jesus saw it all. And everything changed for them. Isn't that what happens when we finally see the divine power of God? But this is not just the random divine power of God. This is not the divine power seen in a healing. This is not the divine power seen in a leper being cleansed. This is the divine power of God seen as an exclamation point to the destruction of sin and death. To the freedom of every man's soul. Still available today. I see this power in people's lives every day. That centurion and the guards who beat Jesus and who crucified him saw these things and got saved. They heard the word Jesus proclaims from the cross. Father, forgive them. And they say, no one has ever died like this. Nobody. Put yourself there on that hill. What would you think if all of a sudden at noon the sun went out? Poof, gone. No announcement of an eclipse. And before you think they were so dumb back then they didn't know when eclipses were coming. Don't. We still use their calendar. For crying out loud. The sun went out. Failed tour. Earthquake. Rock split. And he proclaims, truly this was... Son of God. Some people want to look at the scripture and they say, well, in the gospel of Luke, he says, truly this was a righteous man. And so they say, what he was really trying to say was not a proclamation of faith. 
that this is the son of God, but he's just trying to say, wow, this was a hero. This was a tough guy. I don't know how people do that kind of stuff. Let me try to help you. Whenever we study the scripture, one of the most important things we can ever learn to do is learn to exegete and not eisegete. Huh? So two of those crazy words they teach you in school. Eisegete, put simply, is when I have an idea in my head and I make the Bible line up with it. That's eisegete. Exegete is when I have nothing in my head and I put the Bible in it and I let it say what it's saying. Both, both methods can be utilized in teaching the word. One will often lead to error. The other keeps you on solid ground all the time. In the Gospel of Luke, when it says, he said, truly this was a righteous man, there's a phrase right before that. that people want to skip that phrase. You can't skip that phrase. That phrase says, he glorified God. He glorified God. He glorified the God of Israel in his proclamation that he makes. What's the proclamation that he makes? That truly this is a righteous man and he was the son of God. That phrase, he glorified God in an understanding in the Hebrew mindset, simply stated means he came to faith. He believed. He believed. The guy who was overseeing the hammering of the nails. As God displayed this power. What's that power in the cross? The power in the, in the defeat of sin. And the death of death. And the fact that God wrought it all in that place. Why did he do it? So that that Roman centurion could hide in the cleft of the rock. That Isaiah spoke of in chapter 2. When the earth shook. As the earth shook. That centurion proclaimed, truly, this was the Son of God, and he walked right into the cleft of the Rock of Ages, cleft for me. And he was saved. And them soldiers are right there with him. I'll tell you right now, when we get to heaven, you're going to see them. They're there. Sometimes we say we feel like we had a part in the scourging. It was my, my sin was part of that scourging or part of the nail prints in his hands. True, that's all true. But we're going to see the guys who did it. And God loved them so much that he displayed his power in such a way that they come to salvation. Because he has no glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and live. That they would repent. That they would be saved. That's God's desire for everyone. So he displays his mighty power and we see that in the lives of the soldiers. Look what the scripture says. They weren't the only ones who saw the, this, this display of power. Many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were looking on from afar. Um, the next group we see is the women. The women, this is the most blessed group uh, that followed Jesus. One of the things we learned from this scripture is that they ministered to him. That word, they ministered to him, is in a, in, in a, in a, in a, a tense in the Greek that means not only did they minister to him, they continually were ministering to him. They were always ministering to him. Wherever he went, they were there to help with whatever they helped. The Bible says they, they attended to his needs. Maybe they, they helped prepare meals. Maybe they helped gather together the things that were necessary as Jesus traveled around. Whatever he did, wherever he went, they were there. And they were there at the cross. And they stood together afar off and watched all these things happen. They watched the sun go out. They watched the veil being torn. They watched the earthquake. The rocks burst asunder. They saw the power of God displayed. And they wouldn't leave. Absent from that place was the men. Oh, with the exception of John. John was there. But the women... They were there. You know why? God created women with the ability, the uncanny ability to love in such a way that their needs don't matter at all. You see it every day in motherhood. When a, when a mom gives up all her stuff for her kids. And you see it evidenced. In the lives of these women who came to see Jesus Christ for who he was. Jesus telling a Pharisee one time about people's sins being forgiven. Asked the Pharisee, remember, who loves more? 
The man who was forgiven a great debt or a small debt? Well, those women were forgiven great debts because they loved much. You couldn't get them away from a cross. They watched the power of God poured out in judgment and in that cross like that lightning bolt coming down, the power of God hammering His Son. Not just this pretty little thing, painting we put on a wall. All the wrath of God that we fear, then earthquake and the rocks and everything. God's judgment of sin. Jesus Christ's victory over death. And there were the women. The women were there. The women were in that place. Listen to what Luke says in Luke chapter 8. Just, just talking about these women. In Luke chapter 8 verse 1 it says, Now it came to pass afterward he went through every city and village preaching, bringing glad tidings to the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been, listen, healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary Magdalene, of whom had come seven demons. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Steward. Susanna, the next phrase says, and many others who provided for him from their substance. They never left. They followed him. They were there. They ministered to him. There's, there's three things that we see. They ministered to him. They mourned for him. And they never left his side. They ministered to him. They mourned for him. And they never left. Last at the cross, first at the tomb. That's quite an honor. That's quite an honor that God has poured out upon women. There's another group Scripture tells us about as well. The other group we see in verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea whose name was Joseph. Now we see the man appearing. Now we know that John was there at the cross. Don't we know that? Well, of course he was. He was standing right next to Mary the mother of Jesus. And Jesus said to John, Behold your mother. And to his mother, Behold your son. And from that day, John took Jesus' mom as his own and cared for her. In fact, they were both, they both died and were buried in Ephesus where John became a pastor and served for a long time. John took her as his mom for the rest of the time. He still had his own mom as well, but he took care of of Jesus' mom. So we know John was there, but here we see the men appearing. And these particular men had a a unique, something unique about who they were. Look what it says. That evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. The Bible tells us, in John 19, which is a parallel passage, you can go there with me, John 19, uh, somewhere around verse 38, The scripture tells us, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Joseph of Arimathea was a well-known man. You know how I know? He got audience with Pilate. You think you could just walk off a street as just some guy and walk in and see Pilate? Really? How's that work out for you? I got an idea. Just go see the governor. Just pop in. Walk in and say, hey, I was just in a neighborhood and thought I'd stop by and say, hey, let me know how that works for you. Because it ain't no different now than it was then. Joseph of Arimathea is a well-known person in the community. But he's a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. And he's afraid of the Jews. When it says the Jews, it doesn't mean the Jewish people. It means the Jewish leadership. The Sanhedrin, the ones who crucified Christ. The ones who beat the disciples. He's afraid of them. John 19 goes on to tell us. uh, And also, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Okay, so often we go through scripture so fast that, that that we miss the picture of things. So now we see the next group who has seen the power of God displayed at the cross. 
They see the darkness, they see the earthquake, the veil torn, the rock split asunder, the victory over sin and death that Jesus Christ wrought on the cross. But you know what? I know Nicodemus knew it was going to happen. You know how I know? Because he already had prepared a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes. Please don't tell me that you think he just kept that around when he was going to die so he'd be ready for a rainy day. Tell me you don't think that he said, you know, I'm going to die one day, so here I've stored up a hundred pounds of aloes for my burial. That's not at all what's taking place. What has taken place is he's beginning to see the teachings of Christ, what he said was going to happen, and he's believing he's going to die. Maybe he's at the trial. We know that neither one, Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, voted with the Sanhedrin to put Christ to death. But they did it anyway. It says that they were not consenting unto his death. So they had to stand up for him at that point. He already had 100 pounds of aloes prepared for this crucifixion. It's like when he knew it was going to happen and he couldn't stop it, he went out and he purchased everything that was going to be necessary to anoint the body of the one he believed to be the Messiah. That's amazing to me. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a, who was a secret disciple, he's not secret anymore. Do you think when you show up at Pilate's door during the crucifixion and say, I want the body of Christ, that the Sanhedrin don't know who you are now? Everybody knows you now. Why? He saw the power of God displayed. He saw the power of God destroying sin. He saw the power of God busting forth the graves. And he said, I'm not afraid anymore. And he put himself out there in a big way. The Bible says he went and he begged the body of Christ. Man, that's strong words. He went and he said, give me the body of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body. And Pilate commanded the body to be given with him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth. Does that remind you of anything? Well, it should, because on the day that Jesus was born, they wrapped him in the same stuff. Well, they call it swaddling clothes, but it's the same exact stuff day he was born he was wrapped in the same thing he would be wrapped in in his death because he was born to die that's why he came it's all part of God's purpose and plan to destroy the power of sin to break our fear of death and to let us know all that God is able to do and he sees it the men see it now next week the rest of them will see it And we'll see the power of God in the changed lives in the lives of the disciples as we look at that. So here they've come. They've made their plea. Mark 15 says that Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent council member. Well known to Pilate, he gets in. The scripture tells us then... Now, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb, and he departed. We know that this is the day of preparation. Scripture tells us, because it was the day of preparation, they went out to break the legs of the other thieves on the cross, right? They went to go break all their legs so they would die. The day of preparation means it was the day before Sabbath. You can do all the semantics you want, but this is Friday. Same day the church has always said, it is Friday. They went out to break the legs, but Jesus was already dead. So what did they do? They shoved a spear into his side and out came blood mixed with water. When they broke the legs of the other two thieves on the cross, they died. They wanted the bodies gone. Now listen, Rome didn't normally nail a guy up to the tree. What they did is they tied him. And they'd pull his arms way back around behind him. And they'd tie him in such a way that he couldn't breathe. And he would die slowly hanging on a tree, rotting while birds came by and ate him. It was a horrible, disgusting death. It was different for Jesus. He suffered like nobody else had ever suffered before. 
And when he said, and not a moment before, when he said, Father, into my, to your hands I commit my spirit, he died. Nobody took his life, he gave it. He'd still be there if he wanted to be there. But the debt was paid. Paid in full. They took him and they laid him in this new tomb. And Mary of Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. There they were. Still there. They followed him all the way to the tomb. They washed him, put him in. And when they closed the door of the tomb, they went home and prepared their own aloes to bring to the tomb Sunday morning, the day after Sabbath. Now about this time is where everybody freaks out and they start to become mass students. And they say, okay, well, that's, if that's true, then it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's not three days and three nights. Uh, so? Well, Jesus said that as in the days of uh, as it was for the prophet Jonah, so it will be in the Son of Man. I'll be three days and three nights in the bowels of the earth. Well, three days and three nights is a Hebrew idiom. Hebrew idiom. It, it means three days. And everywhere, you go back and read the scriptures. Everywhere he talks about the resurrection. You know what he's going to say? I will rise when? On the third day. He died Friday. Was in the ground all day Saturday. And Sunday morning, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he gets up. Just like it has always been in the church. That's what the scriptures teach. There's no reason to get wrapped around the axle. Don't come into it with your own ideas and make the scripture fit your ideas. Let the scripture say what it says. This is what the scripture teaches. Well, look what happens. On the next day, okay, so the day of preparation, they took him off the cross. On the next day, if the day of preparation is the day before Sabbath, the next day is the Sabbath. Thank you. So on the Sabbath day, Saturday, on the Sabbath, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. Oh, by the way, you remember right before Passover, they were all uptight about how they wouldn't come before Pilate. So they stood outside. They stood on the pavement. Pilate had to come out to them. If you don't remember, look at the scriptures and what it talks about. They wouldn't go in because they didn't want to be defiled on a holy day by being with a Gentile. Never mind the fact that they were murdering somebody. That's just a little thing. So they wouldn't go in. But the next time, the, the, a couple days later, they're walking in on a Sabbath day, presenting themselves there. They don't care. The hypocrisy knows no limits. The hypocrisy... Of the self-righteous or the religious. I don't want to be religious. I want to know Jesus and have a relationship with him. Religious people are always going to be real uptight. You ever met them people? Man, it's hard to make them happy. It's hard to make them happy. And given an opportunity, they will find fault. they'll say things like well do you know that that pastor over there he wore flip flops to church <laughs> and they'll let that keep him out they'll find an excuse I, when he walked by the other day with his flip his feet were dirty <laughs> goodness but that's what they'll do They'll find fault. Here they are. On the, on the day after the day of preparation, on the Sabbath day, they come to Pilate. Sir, we remember when he was still alive how he said, after three days, I will rise. So we want a guard for three days. We want a guard. The, the enemies of Jesus knew what he's taught. If you ever want to know what Jesus taught, ask the enemies, because they knew. The cults today can mess it all up. Jesus never said he was God. But when you go to the enemies of God, they said, you are constantly making yourself to be God. They didn't miss it. They understood what was going on. They, they heard the words of Jesus. He actually spoke to them. So they knew. He says he's going to rise. In three days he's going to rise. So we need a guard. We need a guard. Remember I told you several people saw the 
power of Jesus, the power of God manifested on that day. The Roman centurion and the soldiers got saved. The women manifest the salvation working in their life as they stayed as close to Jesus as they could. The, the, the men who were secret disciples, they came out and presented themselves after seeing the power of God and the destruction of sin. But we don't want to miss the last group. The last group is the knuckleheads. They're religious. They are very religious. And they're there. There they are. Give us a guard. Not, why do they, oh, the disciples are going to steal the body. You know, they still try to tell that story today. Really? The disciples stole the body. Eleven guys who were scared, so scared, that they ran and hid, suddenly grew a backbone and went and fought off a Roman guard. Didn't leave any dead bodies. So they killed all the Roman guard, or they got the Roman guard, they bribed them to tell them that they didn't take the body have no concept for who they're talking to? But why would the Roman guard want to, I don't, they'll just kill him. The disciples, they're going to see Peter and say, you, you tried to hit somebody with, I seen you the other day with that sword of yours swinging around like a crazy man. They just cut him down. Well, they got their guard. The Bible says, therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say, he has risen from the dead so that the last deception is worse than the first. So Pilate said, you have your guard, go your way. And then he has this phrase, make it as secure as you know how. I find that puzzling. Was Pilate beginning to see something? Was Pilate beginning to think, you ain't keeping this guy in the ground. Isn't that how it sounds? Go make it as secure as you know how. Knock yourself out. Take as many of the guards as you want. This is no normal situation. I don't know. I don't know. But it's interesting. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Four groups of people saw the power of God poured out as Jesus Christ delivered us from the power of sin and death. Three groups, all stayed close. Worship, ministering, found life. One group, all about religion, never really got it. Never really got it. Which group are you? Men? Women? The soldiers? Or the religious. We all got to choose. Who we going to be. Amen. Why don't you stay with me. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father. Lord God. We just thank you. For the truth of your word. And the power of scripture. God we pray that you would. Father help us to learn. Help us to study. it. Help us to read your word. And be willing to see the depths of what your word says, instead of just, just going through so quick, like we're in some kind of race or we're in a hurry and we want to hurry up and get someplace else. Give us eyes to see what your word says. Give us a heart willing to receive what your word says. Give us a, a desire to just chew the cud, to, to, to say la, to meditate on these things. God, I pray, Father, as we just spent this time just slowly working our way through the crucifixion and your burial, that we would always remember that this is the, the, the forefront of the message of the gospel. First Corinthians, Paul said, that he died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures. He raised the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel, this is the gospel. So Lord, just give us eyes to see, affect our lives, Lord, that we would choose, that we would see. All these people see the power of God manifested in their life. They see the power of God moving. They see the power of God changing lives. Next week we see disciples just blowing it up for you changed lives that's the power of god
Lord, I, I just pray as we see those things, as we see you work those miracles, as we see you do your part, Father, that you would be glorified, that you would be magnified. Lord, we just ask that you would do a perfect work in and through us, Lord Jesus, that you would move in a mighty way. For we desire to honor you with all we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.